Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really great to have you here. On this installment of the pod, I welcome digital streaming data scientist and musician Chris Dallariva to the show. Chris is a data analyst for the audio streamer AudioMac and is also a successful independent musician. To say he has a unique window into the world of streaming would be an understatement. We talk about that and a whole bunch more today. Let's get into it. Everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. I've got some business I need to attend to before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show with my guest, Chris Riva. So let's dive right into the housekeeping and then we'll get to uh, the best part, shall we? How were your holidays? Uh, we got through the uh, January, excuse me, the uh, end of December, beginning of January rush there with the old uh, Christmas and New Year's one two punch. I was pretty excited about a couple of special episodes we put up on Christmas Day. Uh, I was able to share an episode that my friends at the Pops on Hops podcast put together uh, when I was their guest um, a while back, and we discussed my Harbor Code album, Joy is Elusive. Uh, Barry was kind enough to let me share that on the pod. And then on New Year's Day, Matt Berenson and I ran down our uh, lists of the REM discography, ranked 15 to 1 from worst to best. And that, of course, was a really fun and really great conversation. Always wonderful to have Matt on the show. Um, don't forget that, uh, WAIM radio is live every Friday at noon Eastern on suburbsradio.com. You can also check posts on the blog. There's even a section called WAIM radio where you can hear and see archived episodes. You can look at track lists and even see kind of a rundown behind the story of how I came up with the idea and what maybe some of the inspirations behind it were. There's also an opportunity for you to have a chance each week to submit your songs for the theme for upcoming episodes. I'm even thinking about doing like a listener-suggested episode where I take some of the best stuff that you guys have thrown at me that I haven't used on the show and making it its own thing. Let me know if you think that's kind of a cool idea. Uh, This summer, in June, I will be hitting the road. I'll be going out on tour for four weeks. I'm calling it The Shedio Hits the Road. I'll be out there. I need some hosts. About half of the dates... Still need a host. Most of these shows are happening in houses and in private spaces. There are these little intimate house concert type things, which I've talked to you about before with 20 or 30 people. You don't need a ton of room. If you have a space, I have a small PA. I have everything I need. All you got to do is give me a corner to set up in and bring some friends and we can have an amazing time. Go to phonophorerecords.com slash Matthew Carlson and make sure you look at the list. You can see where I'm headed and you can see where I still need hosts. If I'm going to be in your neighborhood but you don't see my your physical city on my list, reach out anyway. Make sure you're also joining up for my postcard program that helps to support the tour uh, before it even gets going. As you can imagine, going out on the road like this is an expensive endeavor. And one of the things that I'm doing is I'm not selling tickets this time. These are all going to be done on a suggested donation basis. 
at the time of the event. So people will RSVP to save a space, but you won't actually exchange any money until you come to the show and you get a chance to listen to what I do and see me and hear my stories and we get a chance to talk and meet each other. And then you can say, hey, Matt, I thought this experience was worth this. We'll have a rough estimated donation of $20, but no one will be turned away because they can't afford it. And hopefully other folks will be encouraged and welcome to pay more if they're able. Uh, we've got this really cool series called uh, Get to Know Me, uh, <laughs> Getting to Know Me with 13 Films. Uh, that's not even the name of it. Get to Know Me? No. I don't know what it is. It's 13 Films to Get to Know Me. That's what it is. Okay. I don't know why I couldn't think of it. I'm really sorry. I had a, I had a, a big old space there, and uh, I sincerely, sincerely apologize. Um, but yeah, 13 Films to Get to Know Me. I've been doing this with our film club. Um, I published mine several weeks ago, and then that became the theme for our current uh, film club right now where each of us picks uh, one film on that theme. And so we're each doing our own list of 13 films and then choosing one film to share with the group from that list. So we've done lists from myself, my mom, my aunt, and my sister, and um, we've got one coming up very soon from my brother-in-law, Rock. And I want to publish yours. I want to know about your life as a moviegoer. So reach out. You can email me at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com or you can leave me a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash whatamimaking and you can uh, let me know that you want to participate in this thing. This is also the best way for you to reach out if you want to be a host for one of those shows, I should say, as well. Again, email is probably the best way. Whatamimakingblog at gmail.com. So again, 13 films to get to know me. Basically, you select 13 movies that say something about who you who who you are as a moviegoer and a person. And it gives you a chance and an opportunity to kind of learn a little bit about who you are as a cinema goer and what that has done to sort of shape your cultural life and the way that you absorb and uh and react to film and literature and music and TV. And um, I think it says a lot about the way that we kind of explore these kinds of things. And and there, are, I think, are larger themes that can be seen even by people that don't know you when you look at these as a, as a group. And it's a really fun exercise, and I'd love for you to be a part of it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to write incredibly well. You don't have to format this on your own. All you have to do is reach out and let me know you want to participate. You can choose your 13 films. I can provide you with some some prompts and a little bit of help so that we can get a paragraph or two together to explain why each film matters to you. Then we can format it, and we can schedule a date to put it out. So please reach out to, to me at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com, and let's, let's put your 13 films together. I also released another essay this week called Zen and the Art of Poster Making, and this is basically where I run through kind of some basic rules or guides that I've kind of picked up along the way in 35 years of graphic design. And I specifically am talking about making a poster for an event, like for a show or for a play or a concert or a festival. And I talk about some of the do's and don'ts. And in, in kind of exploring those, I realized that the guidelines that I set up for making a good poster are kind of the same sort of guidelines that you need to live an intentional life. And that it's all about forethought and priority and simplicity. And I'm really proud of the way that this one turned out. And I, I get a chance to show off a little bit of the work that I've done this year. And um, I really hope you enjoy it. So go over to the blog and check it out. Make sure you let me know what you think. Uh, the last two things I want to talk about are a little bit more rancorous. And, and I, want to, I want to be careful not to go off the deep end here. I'm going to take a little sip of coffee here. Ah. But... Uh, 
I, I just published a third piece in my series about about Spotify, about digital music, but Spotify specifically. And it's called What Can I Do About Spotify? Now, some of you may remember back on December 1st, I published an article called um, That's a Wrap. And it was basically my criticism of Spotify, its business practices, what it chooses to spend its money on, and how little it pays musicians. So all of that wrapped up in everybody celebrating their year-end Spotify-wrapped listening habits. And I was very careful not to blame listeners for the problem. But listeners who, who love Spotify and listen to a lot of music, there was a lot of hand-wringing. There was a lot of virtue signaling. There was a lot of people advocating for their and justifying their own behaviors. I didn't want that. I don't need that. And frankly, I don't care. I, I don't I don't want to sound like like I don't give a shit about you. I don't expect that of you, and I don't think you owe that to me. I just want musicians to get paid. I want musicians to get paid fairly, and I want them to get paid a living wage for the work that they do. That's it. That's all I want. I don't want a handout. I don't want somebody to give me my money just because I put music up on Spotify. But I think if somebody plays my song, I should get more than a third of a cent for it. And I think you know that deep down. And so I run through a whole bunch of things that you can do so that that changes. But I'm a little pissed because everybody got real upset with me when I did That's a Wrap. And then literally four days later, I published an extensive and lengthy article about things that we could all do. Changes that could be implemented into the system that over time could change this horrible horrible wave toward artists getting paid less and less. And when I published that, I didn't hear the same fury and the same ire and the same justification. What I heard was crickets. Because I don't think some of you really want to fix the problem. You just want to not feel bad. And instead of trying to shame you and make you feel bad because that's not going to help, I published another article this week called What Can I Do About Spotify where I break down a handful of things that you can do right now that will make almost no change in your daily budget that will make a huge difference in the way that musicians' lives are led. One of them is really simple, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to make you go find it in the article, and I'm going to challenge you to do it. And I'm going to guess that almost all of you won't. It is a simple thing that you can do that won't cost you any more money. That will get musicians paid three times as much. And if I had to guess, you still won't do it. I hope I'm wrong. Go over, read the article, let me know what you think, and tell me whether or not you made any of these changes. You don't have to make these changes but you don't get to continue to behave the same way and think things are going to be different. So if you think artists need to get paid, you need to change your behavior just like I do. We all do. And the last thing that I want to share with you this week that I wrote was kind of related to this because it's all about corporate hubris. Hubris. There's this guy named Naraj Shah who is the CEO of the furniture maker Wayfair. And... Um, shortly before Christmas, he sent out a year-end email to his staff as sort of a holiday message. 
And in that message, he basically accosted them for not working hard enough and for wanting to have a work-life balance that he felt the company was now being held responsible for. And all of these examples of different ways that he wanted people to uh, be on the lookout for cost-cutting measures so that his company could save money. And he talked a lot about irony and uh, sort of a lack of awareness or a, a, a lack of uh, attention to detail. And it is just an absolutely, ma- it's an absolute masterclass in lack of self-awareness and douchery. And I went through and I broke it down and I annotated it with all of my responses. And I think it's one more example of just absolute cluelessness on the part of the CEO and executive and corner office class. And I'm really tired of people like Naraj Shah making 10, 100, or 1,000 times more than his average employee and then complaining that other people aren't providing enough value. So I encourage you to go over there and read that. And again, if you disagree with me, let me know. What am I making blog at gmail.com? I don't want to have fights. I don't want to have debate for the sake of debate. I want progress. If you think my prog- my idea of progress is wrong, we can talk about that. We can have an open discussion, but it has to be based in fact and it has to be based in respect. And it has to be based in the fact that I am out here fighting a fight. And my job is not to make you feel better about your choices. My job is to see the musicians get paid more. Your feelings are less important. I'm sorry. Your ego is less valuable less less valuable in this fight right now. It's less important. So let's do what we can to make some progress. If you think you've got a better idea, I'd love to hear it. If you think I'm off the mark, I'd love to know why. And if you think I'm on the right track, I'd love to know what you're willing to do to help. Because I don't know how to do this and I sure as shit know I can't do it alone. And I also know that this show and the work that I do here and at the blog are powered solely by your financial support. So please sign up for a paid subscription today for as little as $5 a month. Go to whatamimaking.substack.com. You can sign up for a monthly, a yearly, or a founding membership today. Remember, we're trying to get to 500 free subscribers and 50 paid subscribers. I don't think uh, we did not make our uh, our goal of doing that by the end of December, but we are making, making great progress. And uh, we're almost there, and I would love to have you help us get us over the hump. Um, be sure you're also liking, rating, and reviewing the pod wherever you listen, as I've mentioned, and I've mentioned it a million times. This is the best way for us to grow our audience as a podcast. No matter how much advertising or even word of mouth we do, although word of mouth actually is better now that I think of it, but no matter how much advertising we do or how much push we do on social media, nothing will come close in that regard to you interacting with the show wherever you listen. So whatever you're in right now, maybe that's maybe that's in Substack. Like that and then leave a little review in the comments section. That helps it get seen by more people. Share it as a note on Substack. Share it on your Facebook, your Instagram, Blue Sky, Threads, Twitter, whatever. And then make sure that you're telling people about it in your life. This is the number one way that our audience grows. And I got to tell you, it's something I need help with. As I've shared with you a million times, I'm not great about asking for help. I'm really trying to learn and trying to get better. It's getting easier. I'm still not good at it. Your financial support 
and your 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 likes, your your five star ratings, your reviews, those kinds of things make an enormous difference, and they help make this thing a reality. So if you would consider uh, supporting us today, it it sure would be a huge huge help. Now, let me introduce you to my fascinating and interesting guest, Chris Delariva. Chris is an independent musician with a small but engaged audience that is continuously growing. As much as his musical ambitions are headed in the right direction, Chris does still have a day job as a data analyst for the digital music streamer AudioMac. This gives him a wholly unique perspective on the digital streaming industry. Not only does Dalariva have access to both the data of the musician and the streaming provider in his situation, but he gets a daily on-the-ground perspective from both points of view. He sees the struggle to break through in a saturated digital music market while also seeing how costs can mount up for a small digital streamer paying seemingly small amounts of money to the artists on their platform. Can't get much higher, Chris's terrific substack is a wealth of information on the data behind the musical trends of yesterday and today. Outside of Substack, Chris's work has been featured on National Public Radio and The Economist, among other places. Our conversation is a wonderful stroll back and forth between the struggles of daily life as an independent artist and an understanding of how we can better harness the data and metrics that Chris works with every day to create a more fair and just economic system for music as we move forward. The more I explore the issue of digital streaming, its economics, and the impact it will have on our culture, the more I am baffled at just how unjustly the system is set up. Chris and I will delve into the shortcomings of the way the system was built hastily at the dawn of a digital age and then added to piecemeal with the effectiveness of polishing a turd. Chris will explain that while the low payouts for artists at sites like Spotify and Apple aren't even real hard numbers... They're just average rates based on a pool of revenue sharing that is complicated and tends to favor the already successful artist over the independent creator. We also touch on the fact that no other industry works like the music industry, specifically the digital music industry. Film, TV, televised sports, live events, and other entertainment is all more fairly and transparently paid for than music. There's also a chance for me to discuss my theory of the convenience con with Chris, too. It's a fascinating discussion with a brilliant and insightful person who has a genuinely unique view on the subject. I really hope you enjoy this. And be sure to reach out to Chris on the socials and make sure you let him know how much you enjoyed his appearance on the pod. Let's thank him for being here and be sure to go follow his Substack as well. Here now is my conversation with Chris Dallariva. Cheers. Matty C. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so you were one of the first people to post when I, I don't remember if it was the first or second article that I did on the Spotify issue. And and you kind of have a unique perspective. And and I kind of did a deep dive on, on kind of your, your work, both as a musician and what you do for a day job. Um, tell me about how you sort of see the Spotify thing and, and what those two paths of your life are like, if you would. Yeah, so I, I mean, I've made music as far back as I can remember. Um, and by that, I mean, like, by fifth or sixth grade, that's when I started playing. So that's um, awesome. 
Yeah, I've been, been playing for a while. Um, so I always want, obviously, I, I would love to make money from my music as much as anybody else. That's not really in the cards right now. But I ended up working in the music industry, which is a nice, you know, if you can't make music, at least I can be around it, which is nice. So I, I work for a streaming service called Audio Mac. Um, it's more similar to SoundCloud than like Spotify and that users can upload directly uh, to the platform. We have a lot of artists, tool, free artist tools. And it's it's very, very, very popular in, in Africa, um, in Western Africa, like Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia. It's one of the it's pretty much the top streaming service um, or the most popular streaming service. Um, so, I, you know, that's a, that work itself is very interesting. But part of what I get dragged into there is like royalty calculations. Um, and I, you know, I can't, I can't speak to like the specifics of uh, certain things, but I can tell, I, the thing is that I can speak generally about is it's wildly complicated and maybe it shouldn't be that complicated. That's like a valid criticism of the model, but for the most part, you're not paying per stream um, in the sense that, you know, you'll see numbers floating around online, like Spotify pays X per stream and Apple pays Y. The, the general way that it, it works is that you're paying out a portion of your revenue um, to rights holders. Uh, and from that, you could calculate a quote unquote per stream rate, but the basic I guess the economics of it is if the like if Audio Mac is making more money or if Spotify is making more money, then theoretically the artists make more money because of um, that's how the payout works. And a lot of times you see all these different payout numbers like oh Apple pays out more quote per stream, Amazon pays out more than YouTube or Spotify. And again, a lot of that comes down to the economics of. Apple, for example, doesn't have an ad-supported service. You have to pay a subscription. People who pay buy subscriptions generate more money for streaming services um, sure. far and away. So if you only have if you all of your revenue is coming from subscriptions, your per stream payout is going to look higher. Uh, Spotify has an ad ha, has the ad tier platform, the, you know the freemium model. This is what we work off of too. If you're not going to pay for a subscription, we're going to serve you ads. Um, and that's going to make your quote per stream number look lower. Uh, so anyway, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to sort of talk about any, any piece of this. And I, guess, I guess what I'm really curious in that, in that piece then is, are you essentially saying that a stream is a stream is a stream? So regardless of whether it comes from Apple or Spotify or Amazon, that there really isn't a fundamental difference between the way that they pay out. I mean, I, I can't, I haven't, I haven't seen the specific agreements that like say each of them have with independent rights holders or with the, the major labels. I wouldn't go so far as to say that because there are things that the, each service can control in the sense that Spotify say, let's just focus on people who aren't represented by major labels. Uh, they could say, we're, we're, we pay out, I don't know, say 70% of revenue to rights holders, whereas title could say we're paying out 85%. Uh, they're, so in a sense, yes, it, it is all the same. Generally, these, moder these models are 
pro rata model. So it's just saying, this is how much revenue we made in a given month. I mean, forgive me for oversimplifying this, but just to kind of dumb it down even further, it's a little bit like these companies are essentially leasing with a commission. Like it's a little bit like when you would go and sell your guitar and you can you can you can trade it in and the store will give you a hundred dollars, or you can sell it for two hundred dollars and the store will keep fifty bucks. I mean, yeah, I mean that's 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 effectively what it is. It's a so if we like focus on the major labels for a second, um, or like large organizations that streaming services are going to negotiate with directly, that's a you know, I guess it is, I'm not a lawyer. So you, what we're saying is probably simplification to some degree, but it really is. I mean, it's, they own the intellectual property and they're, they're giving you a license to use it for a certain fee. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a generally accurate description of it. And I, I think one of the, the, you could, you know, you could argue like, there shouldn't be an ad. There shouldn't be ad supported listening like that would drive out up payouts. The question that I know the major labels have always been nervous about is there are there people who will never pay for a subscription? Is it better for us to make something off of them because we know otherwise they're going to pirate music? Uh, this was a fear like when streaming started 10 years ago. I don't think the fear is as valid anymore because streaming services are just so much better than what you would get pirating music uh and for a lot of people this has become the way that they discover music yeah yeah i mean they're that's the other thing is i mean i of course i have some bias i work for a streaming service of course I, and i think it's easy to it's really you know of course it's easy to to rag on the the spotify of the world huge corporation who there are hundred percent legitimate criticisms against, but you know, streaming has been beneficial. There, there are certain pros and benefits that have come from that. I think on the listener side, you're going to struggle to find someone just who's a listener who doesn't enjoy music. Well, streaming. I'm trying to figure out as a, as a consumer, what the downside of having the vast majority of recorded Western music in your pocket at all times for a few bucks a month is like, like, how are you going to get a better deal than that? You're not. And that's, I think I've talked about this to some people. Some people say that like one of the original sins of music streaming is that they made it so cheap. It was, you know, for the last decade, it's been like 10 bucks a month. I guess if you adjust it for inflation, it's probably gotten cheaper, which is a wild. I mean, imagine telling yourself in 1985, you could carry the world's music in your pocket for 10 bucks a month. I mean, it's the, and I, and I, this actually kind of leads to a question I want to ask you as well, Chris, but the, the thing I always talk about with people when they say, well, that doesn't seem like that good a deal, right? Like, how is that? Like I pay my family thing is $17 a month or whatever. I pay 20 for Apple one or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. But like, look at it from that standpoint, um, pick out any movie and TV streaming service. Netflix, yep. Prime, Apple, I don't care. You can't get a fraction of what's available. I'm no. in a family movie club where we watch a different movie every other week. We routinely have to watch movies that we have to pay four bucks to rent, which I don't have a problem with. 
But like between the four of us, we share like 10 subscription services. Yeah. And so that tells you that regularly you could be spending two, $300 a month and still not have access to lots of stuff, let alone stuff that's only in the theater. Yeah. So th this is a really interesting point you're making. It's something I, I've thought is the music industry has taken a, a wildly different model than, or not why, I mean, a different approach than movies, which is basically like, oh, you're going to some months, I don't know, Elf, we're around Christmas now, Elf will be on Netflix in a, a different year. Maybe it's on Hulu. Um, people are, the rights holders are just going to lease or license their content to different platforms. Music doesn't seem to, hasn't worked like that. And that's the thing is music, the music industry for a hundred years was in the product business. You know, they, they sold vinyl, they sold cassettes, they sold CDs, streaming turns that on, on its head. And I think the other thing that people are like, streaming is still new. It's about 10 years old. Um, and it's only been pretty ubiquitous. I think for the last five years is like the current model for streaming I don't think it'll be the model that persists and there's probably better models out there that are better for artists that are better for the music industry. Um, I think we have to try to find them. I just think some criticism I see is like, Oh, we should just go back to physical product, which is, isn't, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think we have to not work within this paradigm. I agree completely. I didn't mean to cut you off, Chris, but like, I agree completely. And I'd also say that like, Let's look at some of the benefits outside of music that digital streaming offers. Like, A, it, it totally removes a gatekeeper. You don't have to have a lot of money to press a physical product to have a quote-unquote record. You don't have to store that record or ship that record or produce that record or have the environmental impact of a physical thing yeah. that is in the world that doesn't need to be. So, like, there are a lot of advantages here. I think the problem is finding a way to harness them in a way where people are sort of like, getting a fair rate of pay for their labor. Yeah. No, and that's that's a hundred that's a hundred percent the case is that I think it's also there's tons of backlash against, say, certain streaming services because it's so easy to make and distribute music today. There is not every not it realistically, like not everyone who is putting out music can make a living off of their music. There's just not there's not enough money in the world with the amount of tracks that are being uploaded. In 1990, most of those people would not be releasing music. And it's not to say oh, they, would, no. they wouldn't make music, but I think that's also makes the chorus of people who are like, this sucks so much louder because there's just so much music. And, you know, there are also these conversations always concerned about commercial music. I enjoy making music just for the sake of itself. And like I said, I would love to be able to make a living off of music so it to say that everyone can't make a living off of their music is not to i'm not trying to like devalue that like the music is i'm sure it's valuable but i think it all because it's so easy to distribute your music everywhere on earth it's also easy for there to be thousands hundreds of thousands of people who are like this is broken whereas 20 years ago they wouldn't have even had an opportunity to put out music. i think it's fair to yeah i, I think it's fair to say that Uploading your music to Spotify is not necessarily uh, sort of a guarantee that you will get, you know, fiscal remuneration. You you know, you're not going to get paid back just because you put a song out like that. 
there's a lot more work to it, right? I guess, and I even tell people this all the time. They're like, but you have your stuff up there. Well, that's because I would like my band to get booked. And yeah. that's where people find music. And so if I want to be a musician that people can find out about, I have I have to be in that space, whether I want to or not. And the reality is, I'm not even fighting this fight or having these conversations for my own financial benefit because it's not going to matter to me. It's a matter of pennies for me, Chris. Yes. Right. But but what I am concerned about is that I grew up loving this sort of tier of I will call them mid-level artists, bands that were my heroes that weren't Michael Jackson and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen, you know, um, bands like The Replacements or the Pixies or Echo and the Bunnymen. And those are bands now that can make enough money because they have a back catalog to live off of. But what of the band that's going to be that in 30 years that's doing yeah. it now today? That's what I worry about. And I worry about that, that sort of as these bands atrophy because of the inability to get paid, that the culture will suffer as a result. Yeah. I, I, and I, that's something I, I honestly don't have, I don't have hard numbers on. I don't have a complete answer to is are those middle tier artists being squeezed out um, more than ever before the solution that's been proposed and, and SoundCloud has been trying it. And I, I'm hoping the industry eventually goes this way. Another complexity to how these payouts work is it's just, you're just taking a share of the total revenue pool. So if the service made a million dollars, and you accounted for 1% of streams on the platform, you would collect 1% of that million dollars, even if the listeners did not listen to you. So what I'm saying, I'm explaining this poorly, but you pay five bucks a month, say you never listen to Drake, but Drake represents such a large percentage of streams on Spotify. He's gonna collect some of your monthly subscription the alternative to this is what people call a user-centric model is you pay five, 10 bucks a month. Your subscription only goes to the artists that you listen to. Um, to me, a model like that seems like it would be able to better support mid-tier artists because you could garner, you know, an audience of a few thousand people. Whereas now you're a lot of your listeners money is going to get washed out and go up to the Taylor Swift's and Drake's of the world because they command such a large percentage of streams across the platform. Whereas under this other model that's been proposed, they would actually be collecting money from you because they say only listen to you within that given month. That seems your to friend who says, Hey man, I listened to your record three times. That means that he paid for 30 spins of your record out of his out of his uh, account. Yeah. Uh, so the, the way you, there's like the way generally current, the current model, which this is all like this model from what I've heard goes back to like the early two thousands, which tells you that it needs to be updated is <laughs> there's a revenue pool. And then you say, okay, I had 50 streams on my music in a given month. There were, 5 million streams across the whole platform Do 50 divided by 5 million, multiply that times the revenue. And that's my share. Um, so that's in the sense, like what you are, your money is not necessarily going directly to what you are listening to this other proposed model that SoundCloud has is trying out is 
you pay 10 bucks a month, say you only listen to one artist, all your whole $10 just goes to that artist minus whatever cut the streaming services is taking. Um, that seems to be a better model for the support of these mid-tier um, artists. It's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to get people to change though. I mean, it's like for 10 years, the industry was like, all right, we've, we've built all this machinery around this, this one model, this one economic model, you know, it's hard to get people to buy in at least the, the big players to change. Are there, are there other industries that work this way? Cause I've never seen another industry where the buyer not only sets the pay rate, but then reports how much money they have. Like that all seems very backward from the way that we would normally have an economic transaction in our daily lives. It's, it's very strange. It, it, it doesn't, the, the one history that I heard was that this model somehow goes back to when the music industry was selling ringtones and they just kept like a, slapping it on every new technology. Um, a comparison I once heard was imagine live music worked like this. If you played a, a show to a hundred people, rather than just collecting the money of people who came, it would be put in a giant pot and then split amongst all concerts in the US. So naturally, Taylor Swift would take a larger percentage of that revenue. Right. It's a very it doesn't it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um but the other thing that's interesting about that is that you still have a business that's saying we've collected this much money. Not not a not a company that has intellectual property saying, okay, the rate is X. Yeah. Right? I mean, you go rent a car or a hotel room or buy a flight, those things all have a hard cost, right? Even though you're not going to keep those things, they all have a hard cost. So that's not how this works. No. So it, 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 it some of this is going to, it depends on the rights holder. Usually the, the labels will usually work in a way that they will set some sort of base rate being like, right. you have to, you have to generate at least this much money or, you know, but for the most part, it's, that's just like a, a bottom they're, they're saying you have to generate this much or, you know, you can't have our content. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it, that's like, that's not usually how these, these payouts work. Usually it ends up being a revenue share because typically that's what makes more, more money. Um, sure. so they're, they're, you're right. It's a, it's a strange model. Um, but the thing, and I think part of the reason it's ended up like this is because it's really hard to value like a single stream of like realistically, like what, what is listening to one song one time worth to you or to anybody. And it's going to, it's going to probably depend on a lot of things. For example, in the U S where people are more willing to pay for music, you could argue that a stream is worth more. Whereas I, a lot of our businesses in Africa, where there's there's not as much um, disposable income to spend on streaming, uh, like you could argue, okay, a stream there is worth less money. Um, yeah. So it is. I mean, it's this is actually sort of why I like talking about this because it's it's like it's a hard it's a hard problem, and there are 
legitimate criticisms like i was just oh it's a it's a it's an incredibly complex and almost nebulous problem right like it keeps moving and shape-shifting in ways yeah um one of the things that i that i'm kind of i guess amazed by is the fact that just to kind of go back to this idea of the analog of of film and tv streaming versus music streaming I wonder why there isn't a push to hold some of these bigger releases and charge premium rates. Like I'm kind of amazed that like, Hey, the new Taylor Swift record is out. It's a buck 99. If you want to listen to it now, or you can wait three weeks. Yeah, that's. So I feel like eight years ago, there was some effort with this. It was like, Oh, Kanye West albums are only on title. Uh, and I, my I, I wasn't working in the music industry at this time. My my understanding is that they sl- they slowly started to feel like they were making less money by just not making things available everywhere. I don't know if that's valid. I mean, it, it seems like the music industry's bread and butter for a hundred years, and the same with film was like windowing. So you know, right. first the movies in theaters, then you can buy the DVD, then it's going to be available on your television. And music would sort of do the same thing. It's like, okay, we're going to sell it to you as vinyl. And then 10 years later, like we have a new format. You have to buy it as a CD. And I think that's part of where the frustration from the consumer comes in because there has been this sort of like decades long approach of just, just corporate avarice just to kind of continually get people to pay over and over again for the same title. So like, you know, you bought your dad rumors in 1978 on vinyl. And then in 1988, you bought it four months CD. And then, uh, in, you know, 2021, you bought it for him on vinyl again. And somewhere in there, you bought a cassette or an eight track too. And it's like, you paid six times for the same freaking record. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, so it's, and I can see why people would get angry about that and get, and get hardened and get frustrated, which I think is sort of how people kind of tried to justify the early days of like, you know, basically pirating, just stealing music. Totally. Totally. And and I mean, you would, I feel like at that time, you would also see artists who, I mean, Radiohead was a big example. They were, or Pearl Jam. They were like, yeah, pirate our music. We don't care because they also seem to view how, what the model was, how the model worked as driven by avarice. And so I I think think that like to have this, this idea of going back to some old system that we all loved, I don't think we ever all loved the old system. I think, think we i think there are some of us who really like physical media yeah obviously um but i think more to the point i think there are a lot of us who are engaged listeners and in some cases like you and i musicians who want to see artists find a way to be paid fairly but it doesn't have to involve the transaction of a physical item yeah and that's i don't i don't think whatever whatever the solution is to that I don't, I don't think it's been discovered. I mean, it certainly hasn't. Um, and I, I, I wish I had the solution. I don't. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously it's like, like you said, it's a, it's a really, it's a really complicated problem um, to kind of sort of like dovetail off of this a little bit. I was really intrigued when I sat down the other day and read your interview with uh, Shane Shapiro. I, I really enjoyed that a lot. You really well done, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, he's uh, I I met him a, a couple months ago. He just put out a book. He's 
a unique thinker about music because he thinks about music and how it interacts with public policy and the space around us and this idea that he voices really well that everyone says they love music but a lot of things that we do don't reflect that and and don't support that it's like uh you know there's there's not like music and musicians aren't treated the same by say certain grants or certain policy as say someone who's manufacturing cars or pens right. um, because music you're not producing a physical good there's a great yeah. line in um in in the in the piece that you put together and i can't remember if it's a quote from his book or if it's a quote from your article but you both talked about the prejudice built into the idea of music as a career right like music yeah. is something that we do after work and for pleasure we don't do it to pay the mortgage i think was the way that was it was phrased in the article yeah he uh that was that was from his book it's called the book's called this must be the place it's a great yeah. title it's a great title um yeah and, and he sort of you know how how do we create a world where you can view when people can view music as like a legitimate career path because it, it's still i mean it's totally viewed as like a thing for misfits and court jesters uh to try well, to i mean seriously. you're the butt of i mean musicians especially dudes who are 51 like me we're the butt of jokes i mean like it's you know i'm uh i'm 14 years away from collecting social security but i'm also just waiting for the the band to take off you know like it's i mean it's a cliche dude yeah no totally um it is it is and there's i mean that's a that's a problem i mean people no one would want to live without music but no. to to make to go out there to make music you know you really have to you have to sort of make yourself look like a fool because unless you're successful like people don't take you seriously and i think that's one of the reasons that people are afraid to go see local and regional shows because they assume that it's the community theater equivalent of of rock and roll, even though community theater is probably better than they think it is too. Yeah. Um, and so people have this idea that because it's being done by a quote unquote amateur, it can't be professional. And that's complete, that's a complete fallacy. I just wrote a piece recently about like how massively expensive concert tickets have gotten specifically over the last 10 years. And and I and I just, you know, I was like, here's this other thing that I wrote a few months ago. And it was all about this night that I'd had where I went out in my town and saw three bands and I I bought two drinks and I spent $28 for the whole night. You know, and it was like, wh why would you not go do that? There's no the only barrier is your fear. Yeah. I mean, and that's to to your point, if Taylor Swift and Beyonce are selling tickets for hundreds of dollars you know that's probably going to eat up your entire live entertainment budget for say a month or a couple months um and people don't i don't think people realize that there are local alternatives that are entertaining um that are that are people that you can not only go see and enjoy but like have a conversation with and like know on a personal level yeah and I was just, I have an interview coming up soon with an, a, a smaller band, independent band, who's, they're doing pretty well. 
but you know, live music and merchandise is where artists currently make a, they can make a lot of money, especially these mid tier artists. Yes. Uh, where my, this guy was talking, was saying it on a headlining tour, which is, you know, a couple weeks, they'll generate more revenue from that than they will from streaming in say six months. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't, a, he didn't mean that as like, a, he said like they, they do make some, they do make some money from music streaming, but you know, live performance and merchandise is just the, the margins are better. Um, so going to those shows is really valuable for those artists. It is. Um, one of the, one of the things, one of the points I made in, in the recent Spotify piece was that I, I guess what I get concerned about is I don't want to live in a world where we have to make an either or choice where an artist like say, I don't know if you're a fan of the band XTC or not, but Andy Partridge famously had a stage fright episode in the early eighties and has been unable to tour ever since. So like we're now living in a world where that guy doesn't have access to the most lucrative way to make a living as a musician. So because of that, does he cease to be a musician if he just makes records? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's tough. I mean, cause it's the, especially in this day, I think touring other than like a very short period, maybe in like the seventies and eighties, I think touring was always where the money was at. Um, yes. Especially if you were signed to a major label, uh, you know, they're taking their cut which is, I, I think a thing that it's an old school issue, but I don't think people are talking about it enough. Is like the music industry is making more money now than since the, the crash in the early 2000s at an industry level. Part of the, part of the issue with artists not getting paid enough could also be like, how, what's the cut the label's taking? Like I, I'm not involved in that world and I don't, I don't know. Um, but you know, it's not just it's not just the streaming service reaching in. And- oh no! Well, this is, and that's the thing that I always love. It's like people are like, "What did you expect?" The, the music industry has always been exploitative, and it's like, okay, so it's been terrible always. So it's okay if it gets worse. Like I don't, I've never understood the logic of that. No, I I don't either. Uh, some, I think that how we connected was like something I commented on your post. This is something I deal with at work. Is Google and Apple will take 30% of transactions in apps. Yes. So, which is, it's insane. I mean, it's, it's highly anti-competitive. If you look at other payment processors that work on the web, like Stripe is a really popular one. <laughs> Stripe will take like two to 3% of a transaction. Google and Apple are taking 30%. Um, and there was actually literally a, a ruling came out the other day that ruled that uh google's practices were anti-competitive so we're hoping to see some of that change part of the reason i bring that up is because that's also another hand taking out earnings that could be going back to artists um, and i've written and i've and i i feel terrible because it's like i've written about this and i've written about you just like you're you're somebody i've been wanting to talk to for a while because you touch on so many of the things that i'm thinking about both as a musician and as a fan and i like i'm really I totally lost my train of thought because I was apologizing for saying I wrote about this and I wrote about that. So go with whatever you were thinking of and I'll, I'll come back to it. I'm sorry. No, I'm just talking like Google and Apple. It's, it's another, that's why I say like this, these issues are complicated. It's like, there's so there, it's so much more complex than you go to the record store and buy a CD. How is that money getting split up? It's like, okay, there are these huge tech companies that are taking huge portions of streaming streaming subscriptions that could otherwise be paid out to rights holders 
And that's why like Spotify doesn't allow you to subscribe on their app. You have to subscribe on the web. Um, smaller streaming services like audio Mac, like we don't, we don't have that luxury. Like we have to, the app is apps, mobile apps are the engine of growth. So right. we have to deal with this fact that you have Google and Apple that end up with a sizable portion of revenue, which is a problem just from a small business's perspective. It's also a problem news- from a consumer standpoint. Yes. And people won't even realize that because a lot of apps are going to mark up prices to account for that. I mean, it's like Google's going to take 30%. They're going to mark it up enough to cover at least some of that, if not all of it. So therefore you're paying it overinflated so that Google or Apple can have their hand. And it's like dealing with a a bodega that has to pay protection to the mob and they mark their prices up 30% so that they can cover the, the, the extortion. They got to pay the dude on the corner. I mean, it's it's actually, it, it sort of blows my mind that it's gone on for this long. I think maybe at the beginning of the apps, the apps, these mobile app stores, there was some justification. They're like, we built out this whole store. We maintain it. But at this point, it's like, these stores have existed for so long and yeah. you, there's no alternatives. Like you, you can't download another app store on your iPhone. No. Like you have to use the Apple. It, there's like so many pieces of it that are just, textbook anti-competitive behavior essentially i mean it's essentially a public utility at this point exactly and it's i mean i don't know i don't know how you know public actual public utilities like gas and electric are regulated but i'm sure they i'm guessing they can't mark things up 30 percent it's not based on my limited understanding that's not typical uh, the thing that I the thing that I was starting to talk about and then and then old man faded out on was um, this this idea that I think a lot of us don't have a window as consumers into all of these things that are designed to sort of feed our convenience, whether that's Grubhub or Uber or uh, uh, Spotify or yeah. Netflix or whatever or these thirty percent app app charges that are coming out of the the phone providers. There's this sort of giant hand of technology that's reaching in and sort of pulling money out of what used to be brick and mortar spaces. And I think we as consumers have tricked ourselves into believing we're paying for that convenience by paying whatever the fee is for Uber or Grubhub or whatever. But it's even more inflated than that, I think, based on what you're saying. And and also, again, what we're doing is we're giving that money to the people who are not actually doing the work or making the thing. We're giving it yeah. to these companies who are making it easy for us to get it. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it's that's what that's what brings music into a much larger conversation. And with that interview with Shane Shapiro, he talks about is, you know, he's focused on in a lot of countries they don't have intellectual property rights at all. Like, there's really no way to make money from music, right? And he says if you just focus on that, it's hard to get people to buy in because everyone's like, well, it's music, you know. But if you frame it into a larger discussion about, you know, the livelihood of people and, and then, you know, we're talking about technology is like, how do, how do tech, how do large tech firms affect small businesses and artists, small artists who I guess are effectively also small businesses. Yeah. Um, I think the solving these problems seems it becomes, it starts to feel like it's much more important to solve them rather than just all of us yelling about you know the economics of music streaming which the average another another thing 
Yeah. And another thing that Shane brought up or not, not brought up, but that it looks like he covers, I read a little bit about his book before we jumped on and it looked like he kind of talked about like, Hey, like I've always said, look where, look where property rise prices are going up exponentially fast. It's always in cool cities like Portland and Austin and Nashville and Chicago and DC. And that's happening largely because of culture and culture that is in large part driven by a music scene by large concert venues and independent venues and small theaters and listening rooms and coffee shops and jazz clubs. Yeah. And it looks like Shane's kind of building that into sort of this urban planning thing. So I was oh, really yeah. interested to see you guys kind of touch on that. Yeah. I mean, he knows infinitely more about it than I do, but that is, I think the crux of part of his point is that if places that have very vibrant culture scenes typically attract other businesses. People want to live there. It drives up property values, which, you know, that's going to benefit some people, not others. Yeah, we can uh, talk about gentrification another day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but it is, uh, there are like ancillary benefits to us giving music the, the, the respect that it deserves on an economic level um, in the live event space, definitely. Um, but you know, also in the digital space, that's where people, that's where people discover music. That's where people live. Um, that's where, and that's where they're listening to it. And again, I don't think any of us are saying that it needs to be prohibitively expensive or that we need to take advantage of consumers, but there has to be a middle ground, right? Like there has to be sort of a, I sort of, I see it as like, okay, what's a minimum wage? Like, how are we going to determine what's, and I don't know how to do that. And you probably don't know how to do that, but at some point we're going to have to do what we did for radio, which is to say, this is worth X amount of dollars and no less. And so what's a, what's a fair way to like, we need to make a public investment in figuring out what that is so that we can reach an agreement where businesses can stay in business and musicians can eat. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I'm totally, I'm totally behind that in the sense, like I said, I don't think anyone thinks this is like a solved issue. I mean, Spotify still struggles to make money. I, I mean, this, for a variety of reasons, but there are, <laughs> you know, there are, there are like legitimate proposals and things that we should try to make this model work better rather than just being like, this, this stinks. But to do that, and I think what we've talked about is you sort of have to like get into the weeds about this stuff, which most people don't want to do. No, um, no, because it's a lot of it's boring. I mean, it's boring. Well, and like, Chris, let's be honest. Part of the reason this is appealing for people is they don't even pay money for it. It just comes out of their credit card every month for $16 or whatever it is. And the music's just there. Like all they don't have to think about it except to just open it up the app. That's yeah. all they want to do. And I get that as a listener. Um, Before we wrap up, we've talked about other people's work and other people's music and other people's delivery systems. Let's talk about your music. Yeah, I've been, like I said at the beginning, I've always felt since I, I started playing guitar in like fifth or sixth grade, and um, I very immediately felt compelled to try to make music. Uh, that's been a sort of a trend in a lot of areas of my life. I've always felt compelled to make, try to make things uh, for whatever reason, you know, make burn my music onto CDs in high school and hand them out to people. Uh, uh, what year did you graduate high school? 2013. Okay. Um, so, you know, I guess I was starting to come up. It was like right at the end of the CD 
the CD era. There was like what they call like the blog era where there were all these like independent music blogs. Um, and right before streaming really took over, uh, I, I, I play like, I've always played in bands. I, I'm, I make like, I'd say indie rock, indie pop music. Um, I mean, at the, at the risk of asking like the most obvious radio interviewer question, um, what would you say are some of the things that you've built your own voice on? I mean, like everybody's got influences. I don't like to think of them as influences. I like to think of them as things I soaked up that turned into whatever it is that I am right now. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I, I can, I am a, I'm from New Jersey, so I'm a huge Springsteen fan, though. I like to think those two things aren't necessarily related. I, I am not from New Jersey, and I'm also a very large Springsteen fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he, I mean, he's a huge influence of mine. I'm definitely into, like, a lot of the descendants of the Springsteen uh, sort of, I don't know, hard-on-your-sleeve um, sound. Speaking of, I love the replacements uh, we, we mentioned earlier. There's a hold steady. Hold steady. I I know some other stuff. Not one. Not one of my favorite bands. Not for any particular reason. I'm just yeah. not as familiar with their music. Uh, I'm trying to think of other Boss acolytes. Uh, Gaslight Anthem would be another one. That yes. I think of. Yes. I I just saw them actually a few weeks ago. Um, uh, I did too. I saw them at uh, Bourbon and Beyond in Kentucky in September. Oh really? Yeah, it was it was really fun. It's that's that's a band I've always sort of been aware of and was like, yeah, that's pretty good, but like never been an active listener. I I really enjoyed their set. Yeah, they're 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 really cool. They have an album. Their second album is called The Fifty Nine Sound. It's one of my favorite albums ever. Um, you know, some more, uh, but also you know, I, I'm I'm pretty into like pop pop music, pop pop adjacent music. Um, so I, I love Jack Antonoff, who he was in the band Fun. He's now in the band called Bleachers, and he produces music for all the pop stars of the world, it seems like. I'm really in, into his sound and what he's done. Um, I really like Lord, who Jack Anna also worked with. Uh, so I'm, I'm into, like, I'm also, along with that Springsteen-descended rock and soul sound, I'm also into the very 2010s, like, synthy, synth pop rock that also pulls from that 80s influence it's really like the jack antonoff universe um who also happens to be from new jersey but i swear this is all just coincidence of location uh but yeah those that's, are those that's are all cool. any of it is chris <laughs> yeah i mean so those are some of my big influences i years ago i record i went to a studio recorded was never in love with the recordings um, and I was like, you know, I gotta, I just wanted, I wanted more control. So I, <clears throat> I did what any butt person can do these days. I downloaded, I bought Logic Pro for what, like 200 bucks. You know, I bought a little interface and I started recording myself in my bedroom. Um, and I, for a couple of years, that's how I was putting out music. I was, I was very satisfied with what I was doing. Uh, at the time I was living in Massachusetts doing that. I moved back to New Jersey and I connected with this producer named Max Rausch who works out of his, his studio called Domestic Bliss. Um, and I started working with just a couple guys with him and a couple guys in the area, this guy named John Cause and this other guy, Ken DePoto. Um, and we started like making music together. Uh, and that has been my last two EPs have 
have come out of that process and I've had a, a lot more fun. I, I really enjoyed, you know, having to take control of everything when I was producing all my own stuff and yeah. playing almost every instrument. But music is much more fun when you're making it with other people and Absolutely. bouncing ideas off each other. So that's been my MO for probably the last like year and a half. And I got uh I got a song coming out at the beginning of January and then hopefully next year I'll put out an album. Um we have like six songs done and that's been, this has been a, it's been a very communal experience, which has been a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, just trusting the other people you work with. Whereas in the past, I've always been very controlling about like, I want it to sound like this, just sort of giving up parts of that control and letting other people step in. And it, I think it's led to much better results, but uh, we'll see. What I people- would, based on my experience over 25 years, I would agree completely that no matter what you think you can dream up, it's almost always better if you give it to somebody else and let them come at you with something you could not possibly have envisioned. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I always think about, of course, I've had really powerful experiences with music, you know, sitting in my room by myself, my headphones on. But when I really think about the musical experiences I've had that I really, that were really powerful, it's like it's always with other people, whether you're at a concert, whether you're playing with other people and riding in a car somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Hanging out, hanging out at the lake house, you know, whatever. Like we it, it's it's that I mean, when we think about the records of our lives, we're thinking about times and places and people as much as we're thinking about the music. Yeah. And I I don't want to say that I I'd forgotten that, but I, I got very into like I want to, I want to control what my music is like, because this guy can, my first experience of working with like a producer, I really didn't, I didn't love how it came out at the end. Um, but I re, you know, I, I'm happy. I, I worked by myself for a while because I definitely, you learn a lot by doing that. Oh yeah. Mostly by making a lot of mistakes. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, that's the, that's the whole the mistakes and happy accidents, I guess. Yes. But then, you know, sort of coming around to this idea that it's about if you find the right people to work with, um, it can be a very, a very sad, a much more satisfying experience um, than than doing it all by yourself. And I think sure. I was talking to one of these guys I work with about this. And he was just like, you know, there's a reason that when you name some of the greatest songwriters of all time. A lot of them at least worked in duos. Uh, there are people that, you know, Springsteen, I guess, as an example, I guess technically did it by himself. But also, I definitely like when he's playing with the E Street Band better than when he's playing by himself. So you do, I think you definitely need, you need to share share with other people. And, um, and I, think, so, I think being in a band with other people, you push each other you 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 give each other little moments where you're like oh man that was really good i got to i got to keep up yeah it's a little bit like um you ever play tennis chris yeah of course um like you don't get any better playing tennis with somebody who's not as good as you but you get your ass kicked for an hour you might get your ass kicked for an hour but you're going to play better the next time you play cuz you're going to get better and you do that yeah. all the time you're going to get a lot better, right? Yeah, a professor in college, you said, you know, the best way to 
get better at anything is always make sure you're the stupidest person in the room which is puts it much more bluntly but you know you if you're around people who are no more than you or smarter than you or better than you i mean you, you pick up on you pick up on that stuff and it That's definitely right. applies to music um and but also even if you're i found it even when i'm working with people who i think i'm like on the same level with or some people who i've been playing longer with like they still bring they also bring their own experiences oh. and their own tastes um so, you know, just getting different perspectives is is really valuable. It's hugely important. I mean, I mean that the diversity of ideas is uh what can be the difference between an okay record and a great record. Totally. Totally. I'm yeah, and I, when I when I think of all my favorite records, I mean, it's always they're almost always made by groups of groups of people who are you know, there's clash of personalities and egos and trying to manage all of that yeah that's where the great stuff seems to come out of rather than just i think singular control well or it comes it the genius comes when the singular control breaks apart when that yeah. when that when that moment cracks like i think of a band that i love dearly wilco you know like you could say that that happened during the making of yankee hotel foxtrot like that band kind of started to really like fall apart. And the one dude who was that band had to kind of make a choice about where it was going to go. And in the process made what some people would say is their best record. You know, I don't know that it happened because of that, but they may have been pushing themselves because they'd gotten to a certain point. And I think that happens with, with all creative partnerships. Right. And sooner or later, they're going to fizzle out, whether that's Lennon and McCartney or Simon and Garfunkel or, you know, sooner or later, Jagger or Keith is is gonna eventually die. I think it's probably gonna be Mick. I don't think Keith's gonna actually perish. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, the, and there is a. I lost my train of thought. Yeah, I mean, there's just um. Sometimes I feel like people. Tr everyone wants like this singular genius character to exist, like. I feel like the quintessential example is always Prince. Um, sure. But still, I mean, realistically, someone else was mixing those records. Someone was mastering them. My favorite Prince records are with the revolution. So, right. you know, I, I mean, like I always look at it like uh, I'm a big film nerd, Chris. Um, I always look at it like auteur theory, like, yeah. The idea, the idea that like whether it's Godard or Truffaut or Bergman or Tarantino or whoever, like the director is God and everyone else is just serving at his behest. And I guess militarily speaking, that's how a film set works. But you've hired all these people to do a job that they know how to do and know how to do well. And they're going to bring some of their creativity and their genius to it. And you're going to take credit for it. And we all understand yeah. that's how it works. But let's not pretend that you did it by yourself. Yeah. Right. And so for me, like that, whether it's Prince or Tarantino or Christopher Nolan is maybe a more apt current example. Anybody who went to go see Oppenheimer, if you sat through the credits, you sat through a list of 10 minutes worth of people who worked on that thing. Like he, Chris Nolan is not the only guy who made that film. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's actually, it's, there are people who are, they're, you know, artistic geniuses in their own right. But I think it's actually a really, damaging view for us to 
think that all of these things are created in isolation by a singular mind because almost literally almost nothing is made like that. And I think that discourages a lot of people. Certainly nothing that is made that is big enough to reach people like you and I to be able to talk about it with average people. So something like Prince or a movie or, uh, you know, even something like uh, Godard's Breathless, you know, which is essentially a student film that just became world famous. You know, um, I, I think I think this idea of like artistic genius or like I think that the the phrase you used was in isolation. And I think that's key. This idea that like if if we can create within a vacuum, somehow that makes us great. When in reality, what makes us great is being able to say, hey, I've got this really cool idea. Do you want to help me make it cooler? Totally. Yeah, totally. I, I that's something I've come to. I've come to. uh believe more and more um over time uh you know i feel like another auteur example people point to like orson wells oh sure and citizen king you know a great example it's you know the story is it was orson wells it's like singular vision but i think you had uh i think like greg toland was the cinematographer who's considered one of the absolutely correct yeah which is like, you know, it's it's easier to attach a single name to a project. And I I I'm sure that Orson Welles probably had a more a bigger hand in it than anybody else. But it doesn't these things don't happen in isolation. I mean, movies are a whole different thing. Like you can't make a movie by yourself. You no, could theoretically re- record it, an album by yourself. It's it's, it's a completely different thing because a, a movie is really the maybe the most collaborative art form. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the, the credits roll by at the end of a movie for ten minutes. Even a movie that seems like it's really straightforward, right, it doesn't happen for an album. Um, but there are usually it takes it does it does usually take a village to make an album. It's a much smaller village. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if you've got four, you know, I've got a band with five people in it. I got five dudes in my band, get somebody to mix it, get somebody to master it. I do the artwork. I do a lot of the, the like you probably do, you know, you, you do most of it on your own because that's just what's necessary. You yeah. Know, and, that's, oh. and that's another thing. I think we, I think we, you know, we'll, we should save this for another day, Chris. Um, But I think maybe the next time if we get to talk again, I would love to talk about what it's like to try to be an independent, what your experience has been as an independent artist who has to essentially do it all. And that's another conversation that I think a lot of people who don't make music or don't make art and try to produce it and get paid for it, even in some small way, understand just what's required to even get anyone's attention. Yeah. We can open up that can of worms another time. Cause that's definitely another chat. Yeah. Um, I, I so appreciate you doing this, Chris. This was really fun and super, uh, your, your insight into this was really interesting and really helpful. This is, I think this is an ongoing issue that I certainly want to keep focused on. And I hope, I hope we can keep talking about it together. Yeah, definitely. This was, this was a lot of fun. I love a good, honest conversation about the somewhat boring world of streaming economics. But, you know, like I said, there's a, there's, there's probably better futures out there. I'm going to have to get in the weeds to figure that out. So always down to come back to chat again. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing this, man. That was really fun.
Yeah, that was that I, was. I was I had fun. a really good time, and I uh, I appreciate you being game to do the whole thing. I we did get it in under an hour too. So yeah, no, this was, this was perfect. Um, yeah, this was this was superb. Um, I will uh, I will probably get this out right after the new year. Okay. Um, I'll uh, I'll put it together and I'll tag you on Substack and and share it and do all that fun stuff and then, um, yeah, yes. that would send me a uh, if you send me send me a link I will um, yeah. you know I'll, I'll share it. Um, Thank you very much. Like you around. have uh, you have a, you have a pretty healthy audience over there. Yeah, I've it's been like I said I've been making things to various degrees for my whole life and I've. I've had a couple things like go sort of viral on the internet from time to time, but this is the first time where I've actually felt like I've built a, I've built a bit of an audience. So it's, that's it's awesome, man. Good for you. It's exciting. And you know, it's, it's, I've been having fun with it. And so, you know, Substack is, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. So I'm, I'm here for it. I, I am enjoying it so far. I've been here for 10 months, 10 and a half. I came in in February and uh, I, I have, it has, Starting this thing has changed my life. It's uh, I I would I would I would agree, and I also think just to the point of sort of what we were talking about, I've had a, a great experience on Substack, just like talking to other people who are, work in the music space and write about music. Um, it's been a really good tool to that I haven't really found on another platform before. The only other place I'm starting to discover where I'm finding some musicians is threads. Really? I'm starting to see there's a lot of creatives kind of migrating to threads. That's so interesting. I'm starting to spend a little more time over there, Chris. I haven't devoted a lot of hours yet, but that's kind of where I'm going to start to dive in a little bit. I've been really bad. Uh, I'm not a good Instagrammer. <laughs> I don't know why. I just never took to the platform and I, I didn't like, learn to love it the way everybody else did and so it wasn't like like i kind of learned on myspace and facebook because i'm an mm -hmm. old man and so like i use instagram but i don't use it consistently and i haven't built up the same kind of following i have other places but i think threads might be might be a spot where you could make a lot of really good connections in terms of other folks in the industry to talk to that's good to know i'll have to i have an account instagram is just different because it's it's images and yeah Yep. I don't typically work in images. The only other platform that I've had a lot of success on is odd, oddly TikTok. Uh, okay. I know, I know this is, I know, cause you're going to go, well, you have a middle-aged white wife and 20 something white children. They're telling me, dad, you got to get on TikTok. It's uh, like, fuck man. I don't want to have to learn a new thing. If the thing is, if like, if you don't, it can be a very powerful place. I've grown a little bit weary of it um, just because you have to post a lot. Like that's really, yeah. And the nice thing about Substack is you have however many subscribers, you know, when you click send, every one of them is going to get an email. TikTok, right. it's like every single post, it's like a lottery ticket. I mean, yeah. you can have 50,000 followers and when you post 50,000 people aren't necessarily going to see it. So it can be yeah. frustrating in that way. But that was how I guess I started this newsletter. I started having followers there, getting a little frustrated, and I just kept trying to push people. I'm like, so give me your email, subscribe at Lincoln Bio or whatever. And yeah. Um, so I mean, there are people have people do have success, especially with podcast clips up there. But you know, it's another 
that's another time sink. You got to figure it I out. Know. It's it, it's all. I mean, it, again, and we're. I really would. I was really genuinely serious when I said I'd love to have a conversation about that issue, because I feel like what happens is I don't do anything well because I'm doing all of it, and it's too much. Yeah, I mean, I'm def I'm definitely down for another convo at some oh. point. Uh, but you know, yeah, I wish if I had the answers, I, uh, I, I wouldn't be writing on Substack. I just be, I just be doing it. Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's about, it's not so much about having answers. It's about figuring out what, what works for you and, and how can other people in our position learn from that and yeah. can, you know, and how can I, uh, work, maybe learn a trick to work more efficiently, or even just the idea of like, Hey, Maybe the maybe the message is don't don't kill yourself. Focus on the work that matters, and the cream will rise to the top. I mean, I don't I don't know. Yeah, so, well, let's uh, let's let's have that now. let's have that chat another time, okay? Yeah, totally. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate you, man. Yeah, happy holidays, and I'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, see, see bye. ya. Bye. There he goes, Chris Dallariva. What a fascinating conversation, huh? I really hope you enjoyed that. I hope you didn't uh, get too uh, worked up when I got worked up about Spotify and the dude from Wayfair. Thanks for uh, letting me vent a little bit. Uh, thank you, as always, for being here. Uh, make sure you're heading over and listening to the radio show every week. Make sure you're checking the blog. It's whatamimaking.substack.com. Remember that your likes, rates, reviews, and shares are key to the success of this podcast and the success of this blog. Make sure you go to whatamimaking.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription today. Remember, we're trying to get to 50 paid subscriptions and 500 free subscribers. That's our goal. Uh, help us get there. Help us make it happen. Uh, make sure you take a look at the blog. I got a lot of really fun and great stuff coming this week. I got a lot of, I got a couple new projects I'm working on that are uh, so new I can't share them yet. But we're going to unveil some stuff really soon, and I'm, I'm super excited about that. I appreciate you, my friends. I love you. And as always, I will see you on the blog. Cheers and love. Maddie C. A new year rung in by Matty C and his ADHD. Woohoo!